Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And if you're a regular listener, you know we generally like to use our bit of radio real estate to explore a particular theme. Um, last week it was voting rights and statehood for the district. Uh, next week we'll have a whole show about second chances. And really regular listeners to the program will know that sometimes we like to toss this whole theme thing out the window and instead bring you what we call wild cards. And that is precisely what we're doing this time around, bringing you stories that span all sorts of topics, starting with Geraldo. Yeah, Geraldo, like Geraldo Rivera. You might remember his talk show back in the 80s and 90s. Thank you. So, yeah, Geraldo would interview everyone from actors to activists to dysfunctional families to a skinhead who actually wound up breaking Geraldo's nose during the show. Anyway, back in April of 1989, Geraldo traveled to Washington, D.C. to tape a segment for an upcoming edition of the show. It was called Bloodied Streets and Broken Dreams. We couldn't track down any tape from that show, but just to paint a picture for you, Geraldo and his crew were set up 12 blocks east of the U.S. Capitol building, one block south of Pennsylvania Avenue, at the Salvation Army building on G Street Southeast. Right in the shadow of the massive public housing complex that's dominated the block between 12th and 13th Streets since the 1960s, Potomac Gardens. As part of the show, Geraldo referred to that block as the most dangerous in America. Now, whether or not his superlative was accurate, longtime residents will tell you things were rough, very rough. 73-year-old Leela Williams has lived in one of Potomac Gardens' 352 units for more than 40 years. Back in the late 70s, we used to have a lot of drugs. But then in the 80s, the drugs got worse. It was a drug house on every floor. Then there were the shootings, the robberies, the assaults. In 1991, Mayor Sharon Pratt-Kelly's administration put up an eight-foot iron fence around Potomac Gardens. The tops of its bars bent out, so drug dealers and other criminals couldn't get in. In 1995, Marion Barry's administration brought in the Nation of Islam to help keep order. And now, it's still uh, drugs, but you know... It's not like it was. Something else that's not like it was is the neighborhood surrounding Potomac Gardens. Hill East, as the area's been dubbed, is bursting with new retail, restaurants, and bars. And as Leela Williams points out, scaffolding for new apartments and condos is cropping up all along the Pennsylvania Avenue corridor. They really done built up the area. A lot of these uh, apartments done come in the last five years But she's worried about something that's coming this year, this month, actually. The grand opening of 25 new condos at the old Salvation Army site. They're at Geraldo's corner of 12th and G. This uh, building over here, they probably be asking us to vacate sooner or later, you know, which I hope they don't. The building is called Cambridge Row, and units are selling for anywhere from the mid-200,000s to the high-500,000s. They all have 9- to 14-foot ceilings, wide plank hardwood floors, and custom high-gloss lacquer kitchens. I recently did a walkthrough. I can show you the garden level if you like. Yeah. With developer Steve Snyder. So this is a two-bedroom. Um, it's in the rear of the Salvation Army building, 13-foot ceilings. The sliding glass doors that are opaque that give more light. And then if you walk out this door, 
You walk up a half a flight, and they have the entire backyard. And yet, just a hop, skip, and jump from that backyard on the other side of that eight-foot fence, it's a different world. A world where the average household income is $9,000 a year, where many of the near half-century-old buildings are crumbling inside and out. But does that mean Leela Williams is right? Is Potomac Gardens going away? Well, ask D.C. Housing Authority head Adrian Todman that question, and... So let me be the first to say, the bulldozers are not on the way. DCHA owns Potomac Gardens, though it has a management company run the place. The idea that these condos are here and there's a sense of anxiety, I understand. But in the face of that economic development, it's our job as a housing authority to say to our residents, it's not a sign of anything that's eminent to come. And when it's time to talk about, you know, reforming Potomac Gardens... All the residents are invited to the table. And what might that reforming entail? Well, when the time comes, and Todman admits that's a long ways away, DCHA is not ruling out demolishing the complex and replacing it with a mixed-income community, along the lines of projects like Frederick Douglass, Park Morton, and Berry Farms. Potomac represents 350 units out of the 8,000 units that have a over $1 billion need in capital. And the federal government is not doing <laughs> its job of giving us all the resources we need. So having units that are serving higher incomes can help us pay for the cost of keeping the, the units online that are serving low-income families. And that's all well and good, says Ward 6 Council Member Charles Allen, whom I met recently outside Potomac Gardens Management Office. But if we go down the road of any type of replacement, it's got to be replacing the units one for one. Not unlike what they did at nearby Capper Carrollsburg, where DCHA replaced 700 public housing units and created an additional 1,000-plus market rate units. But while Adrian Todman says Potomac Gardens isn't high on DCHA's redevelopment agenda, Charles Allen wants to see changes happen sooner rather than later. I want to see DCHA develop a plan for the future of Potomac Gardens. We can continue to patch and continue to work to improve, but at some point these buildings will end their physical life. And if we don't have a plan in place, then we're really not doing what we need to do for the residents here as well as for the entire city and the neighborhood immediately around it. And speaking of that neighborhood... Hello. Hi, I'm Rebecca. Come on in. Not too long ago, I swung by the home of Carl Kindle. He and his wife have been living on 9th Street, three blocks from Potomac Gardens, since the late 1970s. It wasn't until the 80s that we started to um, hear, quote, firecrackers a lot at night or um, repeated firecrackers uh, in the morning. Um, We just like to fool ourselves thinking that they were firecrackers. When, in truth, they were, of course, gunshots. He and his wife also witnessed many a drug deal being made on the project's south side. To the point where we did not go down I Street by foot during that time. And right around the time Geraldo Rivera recorded his Bloodied Streets and Broken Dreams show, Kendall says. People who came here who did not live here thought it was very dangerous. Friends hesitated to come to visit us. So now, as people flock to the action of Pennsylvania Avenue and Eastern Market and Barracks Row, Kindle marvels at how the neighborhood has progressed. He just worries how this progress might affect Potomac Gardens. I think it would be a crime to let money dictate what should be there. I would like to see restoration, apartment by apartment, without displacing very many people at a time, with modern counters, with modern windows, with modern floors, and so forth and so on. 
And that would be a dream for longtime resident Leela Williams. She says for decades she's taken it upon herself to clean up the courtyards, the corridors, the elevators. And for 15 years, she's been yearning for just one simple improvement in her unit. I just need a paint job. That's what I need. Can you just ask the building? She told me they didn't have any. They didn't have any? Paint. But paint job or no paint job, Williams says she never wants to leave Potomac Gardens. I really don't want to move because uh, I guess I'm so used to being here. And it's just like a home for me. She raised her son here and then her grandson before he was killed in another part of Southeast. And though most of her friends are gone, and she does get impatient with what she calls a lack of respect from the younger tenants, William says she couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Many of the individuals we'll meet in this next story also live in D.C. subsidized housing. They're students in Alicia Cosnahan's after-school art program in the Sursum Corda neighborhood. In school, many of these kids don't get to make a whole lot of art. But in these after-school classes, they get to learn about everyone from Henry Matisse to Andy Warhol, and then create art inspired by that master's particular style. Lauren Ober dropped by to see what a little art can do for children in need. It's a safe bet that when pop artist Roy Lichtenstein was creating his cartoonish pieces back in the 1960s, he wasn't using bubble wrap as one of his art supplies. But the students in Alicia Cosnahan's after-school art program are all about the packing material. Before they arrive at her classroom at the Perry School Community Services Center in the district's Sursum Corda neighborhood, Cosnahan cut squares of bubble wrap for the kids. So they'll apply either red, yellow, or blue paint to the bubble side of the bubble wrap to make the Bengay dots. Those are the patterns Lichtenstein used to create the effect of color. Cosnahan students are going to try to replicate those in their own pieces. Might get a lot of popping on the... <laughs> a lot of, like... <laughs> because they love that. <laughs> That's one of the joys of this project. <laughs> and she's not wrong. As soon as the kids, who range in age from 5 to 12, get in the art room, they make a beeline for the bubble wrap. I can't read this bubble wrap. I love bubble wrap. We can't pop them. I can pop them. All right, let's come back. Up. Let's come over here, you guys. Let's pick a table or place where you want to sit. Don't sit with you. Let's not pop all of them, though, because we do want to, we're going to use them. Cosnahan's art class is one of a handful of after-school offerings at the Perry School. These classes give the kids in this evolving neighborhood something to do besides hang around and get into trouble. And since the kids hardly get any art instruction at school, Cosnahan's class is often their only creative outlet. The kids love it. I mean, they love art. And they, they're not exposed to all these materials. And so if they didn't get to come up here and come to this art room, they really wouldn't paint or draw or just be creative. Most of Cosnahan's students come from Tyler House, a notoriously violent subsidized apartment complex, or the low-income homes of the Sursum Corda Cooperative. Few of them have been exposed to artists like Lichtenstein, Georgia O'Keeffe, or Judy Chicago, whom they learned about last semester. Cosnahan says the program is more than just teaching kids about art and art history. It's about showing them the world beyond their neighborhood, 
But exposing the kids to that world costs money, and funding for the program has been harder to find in recent years. We definitely have uh, gone through our ups and downs of funding. I mean, last year we literally barely had any funds, and, you know, MJ and Yvette and I were still here every day, picking up the kids from school and working with them. Cosnahan is an accomplished artist in her own right. She paints under the name Decoy and has a number of murals around D.C. to her credit. Last summer, she helped organize a mural scavenger hunt in D.C. to raise money for the program. Part of her mission is to identify her students' creative potential. And that's paid off. Two of her former students were admitted into the Duke Ellington School of the Arts last year. But not every kid who comes through the program makes work bound for the Smithsonian. And that's just fine. Cosnahan just wants them to have a sense of exploration and wonder. When you think of pop art, what, what do you kind of art you think it might be? Um, like, rock and roll. Rock like, and roll? Like, it's a little rock and roll. Um, like, like a picture of Lil Wayne? Yes, a picture pop of Lil stars? Wayne. Yes, exactly. Uh, a picture of Andy Warhol. Yes, well, Andy Warhol was an artist who did a lot of pop art. So, like what LaDrea said, like, um, who'd you say, Lil Wayne? Yeah. So if Warhol was alive right now and he was making portraits, which is what he did, he made pictures of people, which is portraits, he would probably make a portrait of Lil Wayne. Like that's totally something he would do. After a deeper discussion about Lil Wayne and the ways Andy Warhol might render the rap star on the canvas today, the kids put paint to paper. So let's start you off with yellow. Bring the paper. Her student, nine-year-old Zamaya Limes, follows her to the painting station. Like if we put paint on this side and put it down, it would just be flat. But if we put paint on this side with this little bubbles raised, when we, pa- we paint it down, then it's going to have little dots everywhere, just like Lichtenstein's. And with that, Zamaya has her own interpretation of a Lichtenstein. She fills in the speech bubble and sets the picture aside to dry. Bubble wrap time is over. Next lesson... Construction paper collages a la Henri Matisse. I'm Lauren Ober. After the break, getting down and dirty to solve a tricky problem how to keep polluted water from entering our local rivers. As this melts, that should go into the soil rather than go into the catch basin. Anything that goes into the catch basin here ends up in Rock Creek. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're veering away from our usual thematic approach to the program and bringing you one of our freewheeling wildcards shows. And this time around, we have stories on everything from charter schools to pollution prevention to custom-made guitars. But we'll start off this part of the show with an issue that, uh, sadly, is on the rise here in Washington, D.C. Hunger. 
Between September 2013 and August 2014, requests for food assistance in the district rose by 56 percent. That's according to a recent survey by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And it's kind of no wonder. Our unemployment rate is higher than the national average. Nearly a fifth of D.C. residents live below the poverty line. And all the while, the city is becoming a more and more expensive place to call home. But that's not deterring the man we'll hear from next. His name is George Jones. I'm the uh, CEO of Bread for the City here in Washington, D.C. And as such, he manages all goings-on of the $8.5 million organization and its 100 full-time employees. Bread for the City reaches out to vulnerable D.C. residents by providing food, legal services, medical care, social services. It even offers a clothing room at its center in southeast D.C. The other center is in the Shaw neighborhood in northwest. And that's where I recently sat down and chatted with Jones, who, for nearly 20 years now, has devoted his career to combating hunger in the nation's capital. I began by asking him about the factors that are leading more and more people to ask for help getting food. There are probably a number of things that are at play and the things that that I know of directly that sort of seem to be a part of the the narrative for our clients includes the fact that housing costs continue to be a real challenge for people. We've got people who oftentimes are trying to live off of $700 a month income or less. I mean, in fact, the average income for families who turn to bread for the city is less than $7,000 a year. And people are paying these huge percentage of their incomes for uh, housing costs. All these other things, medications, access to health care, food, clothing, the other uh, needs that people have to meet for themselves, they end up sort of picking and choosing between the ones that they all pay for. So a family decides not to, to buy groceries on a given week, they come to a bread for the city. It's one of the things that we've been doing for nearly 40 years is providing supplemental groceries to people who uh, live uh, in poverty. You mentioned the rising cost of housing. Well, food costs are always going up as well. And if you're seeing more demand for people needing food, how are those dual increases affecting your organization? So the cost of food, as you mentioned, really um, have been going up uh, since the recession hit. We've seen, actually, ironically, a spike in the cost of food in the district. And bread has seen a, a steady increase. Uh, probably annually, we've seen anywhere from 2 to 4 to 5 percent increase in the number of people who turn to us for food. And so uh, we've actually tried to sort of redouble our effort and our ability to meet the need for people who come to us for emergency food. We had historically not served the northeast quadrant of the city. And it was largely just a sort of capacity challenge for us. We just sort of can only serve so many. But we really decided that we wanted to open up our pantries to that quadrant and did that um, a couple of years ago. And in the last frontier that we we, uh, opened up to, was interesting enough, uh, single individuals. Uh, historically, we had not provided food for single individuals. We were trying to prioritize families with dependent children, the elderly, the disabled. But we, again, we were able to uh, generate the kind of community support that's required, the kind of fundraising, if you will, that's required if you're going to be a more expansive service. And so we, in the last 12 months, were able to open up our services, our food pantries, to single individuals who were living in poverty. And we actually have two food pantries, one here at our Northwest Center at 1525 7th Street Northwest, and then another at 1640 Good Hope Road Southeast, where we see probably about 5,000 households come through our food pantries every month. And that's that's a pretty conservative estimate. 
When we're talking about these low-income residents of D.C., it's so interesting because, well, you've been at Bread for the City since 1996, and obviously the city has changed a lot over that time. I mean, for one thing, it's become a much more prosperous place overall. But then what about these low-income residents, these vulnerable residents? Where or how do they fit into the picture of this city that's getting more and more prosperous? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of a paradox because as the city becomes more prosperous, it has more taxpayers, cost of uh, real estate increases, everything becomes a little bit more competitive. The job market tightens up because you have an influx of, you know, highly educated, well-heeled people moving into the district. And um, that seems like a pretty good thing to have happen in a, a city. But what happens oftentimes for people who are vulnerable and living with low incomes is that all those things that they um, have to also pie and, and, and need, housing, food, um, access to jobs, all those things become tighter for them. They, they, the cost increases, you know, exacerbate the fact that they have these very low incomes. Uh, and to be honest with you, you know, finding jobs, the job market tightens for them. And so, the, you know, you'll find, uh, as you always, almost always have, find the highest unemployment rates in parts of the city where people with low incomes live in southeast D.C., northeast D.C. And so uh, it's why Bread for the City and organizations like Bread are so critical is because uh, there is this kind of quandary that when the economy gets better for some, it, it, it oftentimes leaves behind others. And Bread for the City's commitment is to being a kind of safety net for families caught in that quandary. That was George Jones, Chief Executive Officer of Bread for the City. This Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, he'll receive the 2015 John Thompson Jr. Legacy of a Dream Award, Georgetown University's annual honor for local leaders tackling D.C.'s most pressing challenges. So we just heard about hunger, and another perennial issue in the district is education. Our next story focuses on a particular facet of education, charter schools. We have dozens and dozens of charters in D.C., and nearly half of all kids in the city attend them. Charter schools are free, publicly funded, and open to all. They're also free of many of the regulations traditional public schools have to follow. And each charter has a whole lot of autonomy and independence. So what that means is the city's school chancellor or mayor is not the one who shapes what happens at charters. It's the individual boards that oversee them. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza spoke about that this week with Carrie Irvin, the head of Charter Board Partners, an education nonprofit that supports and promotes effective governance of public charter schools. Irvin began by discussing the importance of recruiting and training the right professionals to serve on charter school boards. Serving on a public charter school board is not one of those, I show up twice a year, I vote like the person next to me because he looks smart, and then I go about my way and put it on my resume. In this city, when the authorizer grants a charter, they grant it to the board, not to the school leader. Charter schools have budgets of eight, ten, twelve million $12 million, some as high as $25 million. Our organization, in part, 
was founded so that we could help board members understand what it is they're supposed to be doing. So I remember speaking to someone when I first started covering education in D.C. like seven, eight years ago, and they talked about charter schools. You know, they would call up people they know like, and say, hey, will you serve on my board? Is that still an issue? The friends and family board is very common among founding boards throughout the nonprofit sector. That's not inherently a bad thing. Charter schools are founded around a compelling and inspirational mission, and of course you want people around the table who share that vision. However, there are several problems with friends and family boards. First of all, they tend to share a lot in common. So they look the same, they come from the same backgrounds very often, and they bring very similar and overlapping skill sets. The other big problem that we see is what sometimes happens is that the founder of the school, the leader of the school, either quickly or eventually turns out not the best person suited to lead the school. If you're talking about a friends and family board, every single person around the table was personally recruited by that school leader, that makes it nearly impossible, frankly, for the board to do what's necessary in the best interest of the school. When board members are independently recruited, they've been recruited because of the mission and because of their skill set and brought to that board, it's more likely that that board will be able to bring the clear thinking necessary to look out for the interests of the students. Let's talk a little bit about the skill set. I kind of saw it like almost like pieces of a puzzle. There absolutely are resume skills that we need around every board. We do need finance, legal, education expertise is important. But there are certain skills that have really been overlooked usually in nonprofit governance, particularly in charter school governance. For example, PR and communications. We have 60 charter schools in D.C. They have to attract families, each on their own. They have to attract teachers. They have to attract funds. So every charter school really has to distinguish itself in this crowded marketplace. Secondly, the charter school board employs the head of school. The board itself is responsible for evaluating and monitoring the progress of that leader. And and again, if necessary, replacing the leader it's really helpful to have somebody with human resources expertise on the board. But the other thing is that the, the non-resume skills, temperament, motivation, these characteristics of board members are really the glue that hold the whole thing together. When charter school boards work and when a school is working, you know, everyone knows what the result is. What are some of the biggest mistakes they make? Probably the biggest and saddest mistake is we really have run across more board members than I like to say who actually don't really believe that children living in poverty or children of color can achieve at the highest levels. If that's coming from the top, what what can we expect? Another big mistake we see focusing on the wrong thing. So we worked with a school a few years ago, very low performing, and the board was very focused on finding a permanent facility. Not that that's not important, but at that time, that was not the most important thing. You can move to another building, and the culture problems and the instruction problems will continue. So I do, we do see boards focusing on the more concrete challenges that seem to have a beginning, middle, and an end, and, and a sort of a right answer. Another common mistake is, oh, I don't really know a lot about finances, but Joe does. He's an accountant, and I, I, I'm sure he's got a handle on everything. Not everybody on the board needs to be a CPA, but it is the fiduciary responsibility of every single board member to truly understand the finances. And we've seen situations in the city where many board members have said, well, I didn't know that. That cannot be an excuse. 
That was Carrie Irvin with Board Charter Partners speaking with WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. And we want to know, does your child attend a D.C. charter school? What do you make of its management and oversight? Send us a tweet. Our Twitter handle is at WAMU Metro or send us an email. You can reach us at metro at WAMU.org. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We turn now from academics to the environment and to an ongoing question in our region. How do we keep the Chesapeake Bay clean? These days, what's polluting the bay faster than anything else is water runoff, like rain or sleet or snow and all the oil, sediment and chemicals it carries off of our streets and sidewalks and into the Chesapeake. So what do we do about it? Well, in two neighborhoods in D.C., city officials are taking everything they know about reducing runoff and using that knowledge to find new solutions. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us the story. Steve Sari has been walking around with something that looks like a skinny blue crowbar all afternoon. Finally, he's getting to use it. How often do you get to do this, by the way? Open up the <laughs> Not as often as I like. It is kind of fun. Sari is the watershed protection specialist for D.C.'s Department of the Environment, and he's letting me peer down into the city's stormwater pipes to take a look. There's not much water down there, and part of the reason is the cold. There's still snow on the ground in this Chevy Chase, D.C. neighborhood and not much melting going on. But we're also just feet away from something called a bioretention bump out. It's about the size of two parking spaces, and as the name suggests, it looks like part of the sidewalk is simply bumped out into the road. But instead of concrete, most of the area is made up of soil, aimed at soaking up stormwater before it runs into the pipes below the street. As this melts, that should go into the soil rather than go into the catch basin. You know, anything that goes into the catch basin here ends up in Rock Creek. As all of us drive, ride, or walk by puddles, storm drains, and dripping gutters, it's often impossible to grasp just how much stormwater runoff funnels into local rivers and streams. One estimate comes from D.C. Water and a computer model known as the Mike Urban System. Under this model, the nation's capital generates about 11 billion gallons of stormwater over the course of a typical year. That's enough to fill about 500,000 residential swimming pools, except the water isn't clean, and it's generally moving fast, often eroding wildlife habitats. The erosion is a problem, but also all the pollutants that are carried with that stormwater, both uh, the, the thermal pollution that you get from the hot roadways, plus the pollution like the oil and grease that are coming off of cars, and fertilizer and pesticides. And that's why DDOE and the city's Department of Transportation have teamed up in this 13-acre area in Chevy Chase and another neighborhood in Petworth to test just about every stormwater reduction technique at their disposal. Just across the street from one of the bioretention bumpouts is a parking lane paved entirely with bricks spaced strategically to allow stormwater to seep beneath the surface. Around the corner is an alley finished with what looks like regular old asphalt. But Meredith Upchurch, DDOT's team leader for low-impact development, says this stuff is actually pretty special. We're standing on porous asphalt, uh, which is made of the same material that regular asphalt is, that you know, we pave all of our roads in, um, but it has less binder in it so that the water can flow through it instead of sitting on top of it or running off of it. 
All these porous surfaces look to be holding more snow than the non-porous streets and sidewalks. But Upchurch says that's actually a good thing. We thought, okay, well, what's what's going on? The, the snow's sitting, but then when we looked at it next to the standard pavement, we saw that there was ice on the standard pavement, and so uh, where the water had melted on the standard pavement, it was refreezing. But on the porous pavement, that water was able to uh, infiltrate through the pavement, and so it was uh, much safer. So better cold weather performance. Reduced stormwater runoff. What's not to love? More importantly, what's keeping these techniques from being used across the city? The biggest issue, of course, is cost. Upchurch says most porous pavement materials still cost two to three times as much as non-porous options. It cost the city five million dollars just to retrofit these two neighborhoods in the demonstration project, and that's funded mostly with federal grants. Durability is another consideration. On major roadways,、um, the bigger issue is how we can support all the vehicle weight and the loading. You know, with so many cars and such heavy vehicles. But as DDOE's Steve Sari points out, most of the city's roadways are not major thoroughfares. The majority of streets in the District of Columbia are smaller side streets and feeder streets, and on top of that.、Uh, This is something that we are, we believe, is appropriate for the parking lanes. So, and the water from the roadways flows to the parking areas. But before these practices truly take root across the rest of the city, DDOE and DDOT will be closely watching how much of a difference they make. We know that each one of these practices individually works from research that's been done elsewhere. This is the first time we've combined them all in a very large project area. Sorry, and Upchurch estimate the projects will reduce stormwater runoff by about three million gallons a year. Now that may be just a drop in the 11 billion gallon stormwater bucket, but for a city that's long yearned for a cleaner Anacostia and Potomac River, and a region desperate to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, it could be a promising start. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We have more about DC's River Smart projects at MetroConnection.org, including a look at a new sidewalk material called Flexi Pave. It's already being used across the city to help sidewalks and meandering tree roots coexist. And yes, water can drain through it. You can find that and more at MetroConnection.org. In a minute. From the eastern shore of Maryland to rock and roll stages across the globe, he finally, at the end of the last one, the double neck at that time, said, "Okay, you're a guitar maker." He wasn't going to give me his respect; he made me earn it, which I thought was beautiful. It's coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we continue today's theme-free Wild Cards show, we turn now to On the Coast, our series in which Brian Russo brings us the latest from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, Coastal Delaware, and today the Eastern Shore of Virginia. Now, that last place is where you'll find a major spot for NASA's rocket launching operations, Wallops Flight Facility. You may recall how back in October a rocket was launched from that facility on Wallops Island, and shortly afterward it exploded. NASA and its private sector partner Orbital Sciences are still trying to figure out why. Last week, the Los Angeles Times reported that some NASA rockets contained aging Soviet engines, 
and that NASA officials knew those engines might be in danger of cracking, leaking fuel, and subsequently catching fire. Brian Russo headed to Wallops to talk with Bruce Underwood, the flight facility's deputy director, about those concerns. All rockets have strengths and weaknesses and, and known issues and concerns as, as they're being designed, developed, and taken into flight, uh, just like you know any engineering project. Um, we here, certainly at Wallops, were aware of the heritage of those engines. Um, but, but once again, you know, we look at them from a safety perspective here, uh, not so much a mission success. The mission success is really the responsibility of Orbital Sciences and, and you know, and, their, and the other part of NASA that contracts with them. We look at them from a standpoint of, are they safe to be worked around and used here on our facility? And, you know, if they fail, then can we adequately protect the public and safety? So from that standpoint, uh, what we know is there's enough safety systems and precautions and, and, and testing that's done that we believe them to be sufficiently reliable that we can protect the public and make sure that there's no hazards. From that standpoint, we're completely comfortable. In the investigation of the rocket explosion, Orbital, of course, is, is taking the lead on that. How much you know conversation as the investigation goes on is there between the folks at Orbital and, and sort of talking to the folks here at Wallops about what they're finding? I mean, I've read some reports that say that, you know, they, they do believe that the older Russian engines did have a part in what happened. What does NASA know, um, you know, as far as where Orbital is in the investigation? NASA, not specifically from Wallops, but from the agency level, has several members that are actively participating on Orbital's uh, investigation team. And so they're representing kind of the agency's interest in that. Here at Wallops, uh, specifically, you know, we we're obviously interested just from a uh, from an understanding standpoint and, le- and learning standpoint. Our focus right now really is on where are we going next. Mm-hmm. And so most of the conversations and discussions we're having with Orbital Sciences are really uh, relative to the changes they're going to make to the to the vehicle, and 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 fixing obviously the infrastructure so that we can get back to flying and make sure that we understand that and go back. Uh, you know, make sure that what the plans are forward uh, that we've sufficiently prepared from a safety standpoint as, as well as an infrastructure standpoint to support them. So that's where we're focused, and that's most of the conversations. We're not typically engaged other than just kind of peripherally and understanding what's going on with the investigation. Sure. Let's go back to the night of the explosion. I've been here at Wallops for a planned launch. It was something that was scrapped at the very last second. A, a launch night here at Wallops is... an experience that is unique to anything I've ever, you know, done. Talk a little bit about what it was like to be here on that night when the launch was activated and just seconds afterwards, you know, something went terribly wrong. Yeah, it's um, a series of emotions that kind of hit you all at the same time. I mean, there's the excitement of launch and all of the activities uh, leading right up to, to actually launching. Followed by you know the the shock of you know the incident, having done this for many years, this is not the first failure we've had here at Wallops, um, but you know obviously it was a it was a major event and and the biggest kind of failure uh, from a lar- largest rocket we've ever had fail. 
the emotions, the disappointment, uh, all of those kind of things all kind of kind of hit. But, I mean, immediately you go into the mode of making sure that everything, uh, it, the people are safe, uh, you know, that there was many people here that were observing the launch, uh, make sure that all of the emergency responders were able to do their jobs as, as, as a manager. We're, we're checking. We've spent many times, and, and that's why it, uh, these launches are very complex and planning is we we have plans and provisions and we have processes that plan for these kind of events we hope we never have them uh the the beauty of all of this is that you know for the for the most part almost uh, perfectly all of our processes and procedures worked really well so uh that was the most important thing is that you don't make a problem worse by uh exacerbating the problem by by not responding correctly to an accident or an incident uh our emergency response teams both here in wallops as well as in the local community that came to our aid uh to help us put out the fires and recover the debris and make sure that the environmental impacts and things like that were were managed according to plans that's what i'm i think most proud of out of all of this experience was that we did a really good job in reacting to a very bad day that was Bruce Underwood, the deputy director of NASA's Wallops Flight Facility, speaking with WAMU coastal reporter Brian Russo. We're going to stay on the eastern shore for our next piece, Maryland's eastern shore. Martin Ostermule visited Kent Island and brought us this story. Here's a quick quiz. Name one thing that connects Carlos Santana to Maryland's eastern shore. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. Baffled? Many people would be. But the very thing that makes Santana who he is, that rich, singing guitar tone, is intimately tied to a nondescript building on Kent Island, on the eastern side of the Bay Bridge. This is the factory and headquarters for Paul Reed Smith Guitars, which Santana has played exclusively since 1980. Carlos had me build him about five or six guitars in the beginning. And he finally, at the end of the last one, the double neck at that time, said, okay, you're a guitar maker. He wasn't going to give me his respect. He made me earn it, which I thought was beautiful. That's Paul Reed Smith, the guitar maker whose name graces the instruments he's been making for 30 years. It's a passion that started when he was growing up in the suburbs around D.C. and made its way closer to the Bay as he got better at what he did. I, I set my brother's bedroom up in my house in Bowie making guitars over a summer. And then when I moved to college started a bunch of bands and started making a guitar in the art department. And you just couldn't keep me away from it, you know. And then when I quit college after a year and a half being a math major, I moved to Annapolis and started a little garret shop making guitars. It's always been that. That little garret shop has grown into a company of 250 employees. They make 1,100 guitars every month and do $42 million worth of sales a year. Though PRS is dwarfed in size by brands like Gibson and Fender, its guitars are considered some of the best in the business. Maple tops, mahogany back, mahogany neck, rosewood fretboard. That's kind of the tried and true, uh, you know, tone woods for a, a set neck electric guitar. In December, I visited the PRS factory in Stevensville. The largest room is a humidity-controlled wood shop of sorts. Large machines take blocks of maple, mahogany, and other woods and shape them into guitar bodies, which are then sanded down and sanded again and again until they're smooth to the touch. Once the guitars come off the CNC machine, uh, we have the basic outline, basic shape, but you can see it's still pretty rough. A lot of cutter marks, a lot of scratches. Uh, So we give it to these guys. They start with 80-grit sandpaper, and they remove all the heavy scratches. Then they go down to 150-grit, 220-grit, and then 320-grit. After the guitar bodies are done, they're fitted with necks, painted, and mounted with electronics. Employees string the guitars and often play them to see that everything's as it should be. It's both quality control and a perk of the job. The majority of the factory's employees are musicians, after all. 
told, it takes 22 hours to turn pieces of wood into a guitar that's ready to be packaged and sold. But even before that happens, there's one last step. Here's Smith again. Every Friday morning, we open six cases at a shipping with all the managers and go through them with a fine-tooth comb. Every single manager from every department goes through all the guitars. We do the same thing that you're going to do if you buy the guitar. We have the same experience. Smith says the company's goal has always been to make guitars that blend the best traditions of the craft while constantly embracing new techniques and technology. The golden age of making guitars was between 1950 and 1966, something like that. I was in diapers in 1958, so in the middle of it, you know, I wasn't invited to that party. For us, this is our time. So you go into a lot of music stores now, it's, it's huge numbers of Chinese imitations of what was cool when I was a kid, and we're not trying to do that. We're trying to make as good an instrument as we possibly can with the knowledge base that we have. Plenty of guitarists seem to think he succeeded, Carlos Santana included. Looking back on those 30 years, Smith says he's still surprised by how it all played out. It's been an extraordinary run. I could have not called most of it that happened. Uh, In the beginning, it was, well, we'll give the kid a chance, you know, and then it became a real company, and then it became competitive, and then it came uh, that we were leading the industry in quality in some ways, and then they got re-competitive back, and things have changed a lot in good ways and bad ways it's moved just nothing stays the same mm-hmm. and i would say yeah i'm surprised we're here and i'm glad we're here and i think everybody in the building thinks it's a good thing we're still here one thing will stay the same though smith says he's not going anywhere anytime soon i'm martin ostermule want to check out the factory where all those guitars are made martin took all kinds of photos and you can find them on our website metroconnection.org Now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit the Plains, Virginia, and Oyster Harbor, Maryland. My name is Naomi Perry. I live in Oyster Harbor, Maryland, near Annapolis, Maryland, on the Chesapeake Bay. Oyster Harbor was founded around 1947. William Sluzmeyer was the one who sold this property to blacks originally. There were five original houses, and my house was one of the five sold around 1947. I can look out at the water, and of course I love crabbing, and I love being on the beach. I love being up early in the morning to see the sunrise, and it's just a beautiful place to come to and relax. We have a beach opening ceremony every year around the first part of June. There's also something called the sock burning, where you bring your old socks, and you burn those socks, and you bring new socks, and they are delivered to families who are in need. I will never leave Oyster Harbor. I will be here forever, and I hope that my friends, I mean my family, will carry on when I have gone on 
to be with the Lord. My name is John B. Adams, Jr., known as Jay. I live in the Plains, Virginia. The Plains, Virginia is about 45 minutes west of Washington, um, directly off Route 66 uh, between Haymarket and Marshall, and uh, is between the towns of Middleburg and Warrenton. The main industry here used to be farming. It is countryside after all, and I guess you could still say it's farming. The, the type of farming has changed through the years, however. In the early 20s, most of it was still recovering, in a sense, from the war, and they basically would, would either have cattle, sheep, uh, raise corn, those kinds of things, dairy. But through the years, it is, if you will, become a little more gentrified, as I have to be in Washington and Richmond and Fredericksburg and different places from time to time. It's always serene to come back to an open area that is uh, not only beautiful, but visually, but also calming. We heard from Jay Adams in the Plains and Naomi Perry in Oyster Harbor. And if you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. Our email is metro at wamu.org, or you can send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Martin Ostermule, Kapitha Cardoza, Lauren Ober, and Brian Russo. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find information about all the music we use at metroconnection.org. And while you're there, you can also find a link to our free weekly podcast. Or check us out on iTunes and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show we're calling Second Chances. We'll meet D.C. teens who are using their own mistakes to encourage other young people to stay out of trouble. We'll look at a program in Virginia that turns roadkill into mulch. And we'll talk with a former congressman in Maryland about his rather unexpected second career, far from the political spotlight. Got home about 11 o'clock one night. My wife said, you got a strange phone call. I said, really? And she said, yes, somebody from Idaho. And I didn't know what they were talking about because I never told my wife I did this. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.